Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Well, good morning again. Great to have you here. This morning, uh, we're in between series, and Jonathan gave me the freedom to talk about whatever I want. (laughs) Dangerous. As I began to think and pray about it, I very quickly felt like the Lord was leading me to talk about discipling the next generation. And then I quickly started to second-guess myself, because I don't want to come across as if I think I've got this all figured out, as if I'm offering you parenting advice. Trust me, I'm far from perfect on the parenting journey. I only have four years' experience. So for me to stand up here and to tell you with school-age children and teenagers how it is would just be foolish of me. So I'm not going to pretend like I understand what it's like to raise teenagers. So you can take a deep breath. This isn't Parenting Advice Sunday. But with that said, I do think that I have a bit of a unique perspective in getting to work with teens every week for the past seven years. And I believe that God has hope for us and some practical wisdom as we try to disciple our children and give them the best opportunity to know and experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, one more caveat. I know there are many of you in here today that don't have kids, or maybe your kids are long grown out of your house, and you're thinking, this is tune out Sunday. You get to just chill for the next 30 minutes. Listen, that couldn't be farther from the truth. As we dive in, I hope that you see that every single one of us has a huge, important role to play in the raising up and discipling of the next generation. Okay, so rather than checking out, I'm inviting you to zone in and maybe even prepare your hearts for your future if you hope to have kids one day. Now, to jump in, I want to start by reading a passage from Judges chapter 2 that haunts me both as a pastor and as a parent. I'll give you a bit of a brief context. So uh, we're going to pick the story up in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. But before that, uh, the nation of Israel had been living as slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And God asks Moses, you know, Big Mo, to go and lead his people out of slavery and into the promised land. After 10 brutal plagues, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, finally lets the Israelites leave and they begin their journey to the promised land. Not long after that, the people start complaining to Moses, and they decide to make a golden calf to worship instead of the God who just rescued them from slavery. Because of their lack of trust and their grumbling, God decides that an entire generation will need to pass away before before they'll get to enter into the promised land. So for 40 years, they wander around the desert, but God never once turned his back on his people. His very presence was with them every day, cloud at day, fire by night. Every single day, he provided food and water for them. And finally, after 40 years, after the previous generation had passed away, Moses dies on the cusp of the promised land. Joshua takes over as leader of the nation of Israel. 
and he leads them to conquer the land that God had promised for them. Joshua then divides up the land for the various tribes to settle, and this is where we pick up our story in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. It says, after, Josh, after Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribes left to take their possession of the land allotted to them. And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. Is anybody else haunted by that story? That is exactly what I don't want to happen to my kids, and I'm sure what you don't want to happen to yours. After all the ways that God had cared for them, he'd freed them from slavery, he had journeyed with them through the wilderness, he had faithfully fed them and given them steady, heroic leaders like Moses and Joshua. A story of God fulfilling every undeserved promise of protection. And after all that, an entire generation <laughs> chose to not follow their God, chose to follow other gods. Can you sense God's heart breaking in that? Unfortunately, I've seen this pattern happen time and time again in the life of the church. The first generation experiences God. They experience an authentic encounter with their Savior, Jesus Christ. And through deep repentance, they begin a magnificent story of a redeemed life. They radically turn from their old lifestyle that left them empty and aching to a new life in Christ to become a new creation. That's many of you here today. You have big stories of our God, big enough to change you down to the very core. But if we're not careful, if we aren't intentional about making disciples of our own children, our kids are liable to miss their own soul-changing experiences with the God who redeems and simply live on the tales of our experiences. And if that happens, then the second generation knows about God, but they don't experience him. They may know about what he expects, how they should live. They may be good people with strong morals and an admirable lifestyle. They might even go to church as they've been taught. But if, if we fail to show them what a passionate Jesus follower looks and feels and sounds and acts like, they may grow up to simply know about God. And then this generation, in turn, tends to raise their children with a whole lot of tolerance and goodwill, but without a lot of conviction or direction. And then if that happens, the third generation doesn't experience or know God. All of that radical passion from the first generation with their pulsing faith and miraculous transformation is gone. That ought to bring every one of us to our knees. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. Our kids are not going to passionately follow Jesus because their parents did. Each and every one of our sons or daughters must make their own decision to follow Jesus. For real faith to thrive, each generation must become the first generation, the generation that experiences the life-changing love of Christ. 
The frightening thing is that this story from Judges isn't just the story of their time. No, this continues to repeat itself into our 21st century world. There's a reputable research organization called Barna that does research for the church with the purpose of helping the church to see what is actually going on in the world. A few, a few years back, Barna did these two massive projects in partnership with World Vision. One that followed 16,000 18 to 35 year olds across 25 countries, and a second that followed 25,000 13 to 17 year olds across 26 countries. And they just started asking questions about faith and spirituality and those kinds of things. These huge reports revealed a number of encouraging and concerning trends about the next gen that we don't have time to get into today. But if that interests you, I encourage you to check out the studies online. For our time today, I just want to highlight some of the stats found in these studies and then talk about where do we go from there. This project revealed that there are a ton of Christian kids, church kids, walking away from their faith. Not a ton of unbelieving becoming believing, but kids that grew up in church, grew up in Sunday school, grew up at church camps, and somewhere along the way in that 18 to 30-year-old space, they said, forget this. They bailed. They walked away. Here's how this broke down in the survey. 21% of those surveyed identified themselves as prodigals or ex-Christians. Despite having attended a Christian church as a child or a teen, or having considered themselves a Christian at some point, they now no longer identify themselves as Christian. These are, I grew up in church, I went to Christian school, and forget all that nonsense. I'm out. 37% are what they classified as nomads or lapsed Christians. These people identify themselves as Christians, but have not attended church in the past month, and the vast majority haven't been involved in a faith community at all for six months or more. This is a massive group that would say, I'm a Christian. Do you go to church? No. When's the last time you were involved in anything spiritual? Can't remember. But you're a Christian? Yeah. Then there's 30% are what we would call habitual churchgoers. They describe themselves as Christian, and they've attended church at least once in the last month, yet do not have foundational core beliefs or behaviors associated with being an intentional, engaged disciple. These are church folk who have no intention of knowing or loving or following Jesus, but consider themselves to be moral people because they occasionally attend church. Honestly, this is classic cultural Christianity at its finest. And honestly, it's not Christianity at all. There is a huge amount of people that think they're Christians and they're not. And they're not, not because they struggle with this or they stumble and fall or they've got this addiction. No, they're not because they don't love Jesus and they have no intention of surrendering themselves to him. The last category, this is 12% of the survey and only 9% of the Canadians surveyed are what they call resilient disciples. These are Christians who attend church at least monthly. They engage with their church more than just attending worship services. They trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. They are committed to Jesus personally and affirm that he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. They also express a desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. 
That's 12% or 9% of Canadians in this massive study. Which leaves us with those who are leaving angry or those who are staying but not really believing anything except I'm a Christian because I'm a good person or I go to church because my parents did. Guys, this is like sound the alarm. Once they become adults, only about 10% of our Christian kids will become resilient disciples if the trends continue. We've been averaging around 50 kids and teens a week this past year at NAC. 10% means that statistically, five of those kids and teens are heading towards becoming resilient disciples. Five. And 45 are heading towards nominal, habitual Christians at best. That number is what keeps me going in youth ministry. We need to rethink how we're raising disciples in the name of Jesus because this doesn't fall on them. This falls on us. I, I have little patience for those that want to rip on other generations. Like, where did those 90% learn all that? Adults are going, they don't have any resilience. Yeah, where did they learn no resilience? Maybe because they were babied and coddled and helicoptered and never let to suffer? Babies are born learning resilience when they scream for a bottle and have to comfort themselves. No, if they don't have resilience, that isn't on them. That's on us. They learned it along the way. And in the same way, it has been given to us to raise up and teach and show the next generation, not for them to just discover it. God has called us to be the people of God in a visible and empowering way for our own children and the children of this church in such a way that says that we are serious about the things of the gospel. So I've raised the red flag. I've brought the problem to light. Hopefully you see that the stats are concerning about how we're raising disciples. But if you're anything like me, you're probably going, okay, okay, I see the problem. What am I supposed to do about it? How am I supposed to raise my kids that they become actual resilient disciples? I think the first step is to know the one true story that we are living in and to help our kids see and experience that story. Whether we know it or not, we all see the world through the lens of story. And what we're trying to do is make sense of pain and beauty that we experience in this world. Every one of us has experienced the brokenness of this world. Death, addiction, abuse, disaster, betrayal. And then we've also seen really beautiful, amazing things. And so we all subconsciously begin to make sense of all that in some sort of story, which plays into everything about how you live your life. So if you believe you're in a certain story, you're going to play out how you treat your time and your money and your mind and your energy and your body a certain kind of way. But if you believe you're in a different kind of story, you'll treat those things differently. Does that make sense? So I'm going to quickly go through some common stories that we live into, and then I want to tell you about the one true story, the only story that there actually is, and encourage us to live out of that story. The first story is that there is no God. There's no authority over me. This story believes that we exist as a fluke. There's no God, no higher authority. Just something happened back there, and miraculously, the whole universe and everything necessary for life just happened. And over an extended period of time, we evolved to this moment in history where here we are. 
There's nothing divine. There just is what is. Pain and death aren't problems to be solved. They're just biological realities. The same way, beauty and love are also just mere biological realities. There's no deeper meaning. They're there for the sole purpose of propagating the species. This story says, you are on your own. The story often plays out as radical individualism. Nothing matters except what I want or what I feel. A second popular story is that there is a God or some higher power, but he or she is powerless and indifferent. This story says that there's a creator, maybe even a bunch of them, and they've given beauty so that we can admire beauty, but they're, they're kind of indifferent. They've made this thing happen, and then they left us alone. And we can't really know who we are. It's more of an agnostic view. There's a divine being, but he's not paying all that much attention to you. I mean, come on, the universe is a big place, and you're just a tiny little insignificant speck. This belief system would also say that we all go to heaven, except for the really, really, really evil people. The problem is that the standard of goodness is entirely subjective. It's only based on what the individual person believes is good. And then there's a story that I think so easily steals from us and chips away at us as Christians. And that's the story that there is a God, but that God has scales. You know what I mean by that? He's weighing good versus evil. And at the end of your life, you're going to step on that scale. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you go to heaven. This God is generous to the obedient, but opposes the disobedient. Most pain, suffering, and death happens because we don't do what God has commanded us to do. By the way, this is where most world religions fall. And it is a lie that Christianity lands here. But unfortunately, it's a lie that is persuasive, and a lot of people buy into it. Honestly, I bet there's people in this room that buy into it. But it is utter madness to me that biblical Christianity gets lumped in with this. This God of the scales is the anti-gospel. Christ didn't come with scales. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world from condemnation. Honestly, it's not surprising to me when people are wounded and hurt by the church and bail on it because this is what they got taught. This is not about working hard to try to please some God with our, react, with our actions so we can get to heaven. That's not what we, that's not what we believe. We believe the gospel. And that brings me to the only story, the only true story that there actually is. I'm going to share a quick flyby version, but Jonathan preached an entire sermon last week about the simple and beautiful truths of the gospel. I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you missed it. The one true story that there is, is that the creator, God of the universe, triune in nature, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit had a perfect, beautiful, loving relationship between themselves. And out of that perfect, loving relationship, love and beauty overflowed onto the canvas of creation. The Bible says over and over, it was good. It was good. Dang, it was very good. And in this created world, God walks intimately with his creation, and they were naked and unashamed. This has less to do with nudity and everything to do about the state of their hearts. They were perfectly and intimately known by their creator with no shame, no comparison, no wondering, am I enough? Unfortunately, the Bible tells us that didn't last long before the fall occurs. 
where God's good creation is fractured because of the rebellion of humankind, the desire to be their own gods instead. At this fracturing of creation, sin enters the world, and we see that where there was love and goodness and beauty and intimacy with God, all of a sudden there is hate and jealousy and envy and murder and chaos sown into the world. But unlike the other stories out there, the creator didn't turn his back on creation. No, our creator moves towards his creation. And not just once, but over and over and over again. The people of God flip-flop back and forth between surrendering to him and choosing other gods. In our lives, we're the same way, turning our backs on God over and over again. And what does he do? Does he destroy everybody? No. He continues to move towards his people again and again. He saves them from slavery in Egypt. Then he sets up his tabernacle right in the middle of his people. Then he sets up his temple right in the middle of Jerusalem. And then here's the best news ever. God came down from his perfect union with the Father and the Holy Spirit. God the Son, who has always been, will always be. He chose to put on flesh and came down to earth so that we would never be able to say that he doesn't get it. He was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. Because of that, we have an empathetic high priest. So are you wrestling with anger, with hate, with unforgiveness? Do you know what you have? An empathetic high priest. Do you have a shame thing, a secret lust thing, a greed thing? Do you know who you can rescue from that? The creator of the universe who is your empathetic high priest. And then this all culminates in the death and the resurrection of Christ. All of God's wrath towards my sin, past, present, and future, is fully, freely, and forever absorbed on the cross of Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior. And through this sacrifice, Christ's perfect life, his righteousness before God, is given to me. We sing and preach the gospel in here week after week because we need to remind ourselves of it. We need to believe it, right? I've, I've been in church my entire life. I've been intentionally trying to follow Jesus for at least half of that. And if you're anything like me, it is so easy to fall back into striving. The God of the scales mentality. Jesus, give me the list. Tell me what I need to do. He's like, I'd really rather just be with you. Stop trying to earn and white knuckle your way to get good enough. Just get in here. Come be with me. I began a good work with you, and I will bring it to completion. And how does he complete this good work? This is the final part of the story. When you surrender yourself to Jesus, he gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit to indwell you. And the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the grave, has the power to transform you, to raise the old former parts to new life in him. And then he empowers you with gifts and strength in this new life to be a part of making all things new, to push back darkness and establish light in whatever sphere you find yourself in. This is the only story that there actually is, and all other stories are counterfeit and will lead you to rot. Now, you may be asking, how does this whole living into the one true story have anything to do with my kids choosing to follow Jesus? I would tell you it has everything to do with your kids following Jesus. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, 
The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. If you've been in church for any time, I'm sure you're probably familiar with this passage. When Jesus was asked, what's the most important command? He quoted this verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he adds a second half to it from Leviticus 19, where he says, you should also love your neighbor as yourself. But I'm sure many of us have missed the next part of that Deuteronomy passage. Immediately after God gives the most important commandment, love me with your entire life, he says, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Other versions say, impress them on your children or teach them diligently to your children. Similarly, David in Psalm 145 says, let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. Another version of that one says, one generation shall commend your works to one another. The word commend means to, to recommend, to advocate, to endorse, to champion. We could read it like this. One generation shall endorse, shall champion your works to the next. Now let me ask you a question. How do you feel that your endorsement of the gospel is going? You want to diligently teach your children to follow after Jesus, right? You want to be a champion of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the next generation. You want your kids to become part of that 10% group of the radical disciples. Look, our kids are little inauthentic radar machines. They can sniff out a mile away if we aren't living what we're preaching. So before we can get to some practical wisdom on what it looks like to disciple the next gen, we have to look honestly at ourselves our own hearts, to see if we're living a life that is worthy of our kids following after. Now look at me. If you just heard me say that you need to be a better Christian, that you need to try harder, that you need to white-knuckle your way to holiness so that your kids can follow Jesus, you've completely missed what I'm saying. And you've actually proven about knowing our own story. Because it sounds like you just slipped back into that scales thing. You teaching your children diligently and endorsing the gospel is not about getting your little rule book out and saying, don't do this, don't do this, do this. That's moralism. That's legalism. That is not the gospel. When the Bible tells you to diligently teach your children and endorse the gospel to them, it means teach them the one true story. Teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And really, the only effective way to do that is to live into that story yourself. Your kids need to see the real you. They need to know that you're just as much a wreck as they are. They need to see that on your own, you're doomed. But thanks to the gift of salvation and grace from Jesus, you're a new creation. They need to hear about how you've been on this journey 10, 25, 40 years, and still probably daily, God is chiseling away at you, refining you, bringing new life to you. That there are things that keep popping up that you thought should have been dealt with years ago. But you can also point to areas that you can show how God has healed and renewed things in you. Your kids need to see that all that will ever be transformed in you won't come by your effort, but by being in his presence 
being shown the beauty and grace of Christ as opposed to the wickedness of the world. That's how we grow. And that is what I mean by endorse the gospel and teach it diligently. Humbly live out the only true story that there is in your life and invite them to join in on it. Now you may be thinking, okay, pastor, I'm hearing you. Make it about the gospel, not about earning and working and legalism. But what does that look like on the ground with my toddler, with my fourth grader, with my teenager? I'm glad you asked, because that's exactly where our passage in Deuteronomy goes. Verse 7 says, Repeat them again and again to your children, or teach them diligently to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road. He's not saying you have to embark on this intensive discipleship program to get there. No, he says, talk about the gospel when you're at home and when you're on the road. Does anybody have any time at home with their kids this week? Just me and you? Yeah. (laughs) Anybody have any sit-down meals with their kids? Help their kids with homework? Read books together? Catch a hockey game together? Yeah. Was anybody in the car with their kids this week? Yeah, dropping them off at school or sports practice or a friend's house or a job. I love this passage because it's so practical. You don't need to get up at 5 a.m. to work through some material together. Just reclaim the everyday moments, the gaps in your day that you already have with your kids. I know of a family that every time an ambulance drives by with their lights on, they just take a quick 30 seconds While they're in the car and they pray for whoever that ambulance is for, pray for their families, pray for their safety. It's so simple, yet they're showing their kids that God is in control and that he cares even about that situation. I think one of the most effective ways to gospel your kids is to own your own mistakes, to apologize to your kids. When you blow up at them, when you say something snippy, when you respond unfairly, Whatever that thing is, ask them for forgiveness. This shows them that you're human too, that you aren't perfect, that you're in process. And then you can pivot the conversation to God. You know, sometimes daddy overreacts and loses his cool, but you know, your father in heaven never loses his cool. He's so patient and kind, and he wants to hear from you, even when you've blown it. Boom, you just turned one of your messy mistakes into a beautiful moment of teaching them the gospel. He continues in the verse. When you're going to bed and when you're getting up, if you have little ones, you probably have some sort of bedtime routine. This is an easy, natural time of day to slow things down and check in on their hearts. How was school today, kiddo? Anything challenging? Anything you want to talk about? You're creating this environment where there doesn't need to be shame or fear but a loving, supportive parent who is for their kid, no matter what they bring. Hey, I know you're really nervous about your history test tomorrow. Do you know that I'm so proud of you, no matter how that thing goes? And God has such good plans for your life. I think one of the best tools to disciple your kids is to be their biggest cheerleader. There's this saying, your kids will become who you tell them you see them becoming. I say that again because it's a little confusing. Your kids will become who you tell them you see them becoming. 
I think this is hard for some of us because we spend so much time trying to correct our kids. Not this way, this way. But encouraging your kids when they take a step towards the heart of Jesus is 10 times more effective at discipling them than any other than any correction will ever be. Now, don't hear me say that they don't need correction and discipline. What I'm saying is that encouragement is actually one of those tools of discipline that helps to shape your kids. Even if it's the tiniest little thing. Hey, buddy, I saw how you wanted to hit your sister, and you didn't. Way to go, man. You're becoming a really respectful, self-controlled young man. Even if nine times out of ten he hits his sister, Encourage him when you see him taking the steps. I'll give you a little example from my daughter's life. I work on a farm part-time, and uh, there are many days that I come home from a full day outside in the nasty coldness of winter, and I'm just exhausted, I'm chilled to the bone, I'm, I'm just feeling kind of crappy. And on these days, I often throw on this big, red, thick hoodie that I have to help me warm up. This past week, I had one of those days. I came home, I was drained, I was cold. My three-year-old daughter goes and runs to my room. She grabs my red sweater, and she comes and runs to me and says, here you go, Daddy, I got your sweater. I mean, it just melted my heart. But we got to take a little passing moment there and say, Haven, you have such a heart of compassion. God loves the way that you loved your daddy. Your children will become who you tell them you see them becoming. This isn't some weird manipulation. This is discipling your kids towards the gospel of Jesus through little mundane encouragements. All right. The second thing we must do is live in unrelenting grace. In Psalm 145.8, a couple verses after that commend the next generation verse, we read, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Just like we need to live out the true story if we hope our kids are going to grasp it, we also need to be the hands and feet of Jesus who is unbelievably gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And once again, this primarily happens by letting it play out in your life first. Then it means allowing the grace of God to rest on you in such a way that you're able to heal from things that you need to heal from. I'm going to say that a little differently. To live in unrelenting grace means that you, as an adult, as a parent, need to treat violently the broken parts of you. Because we will hand down what we are far more than what we say. And there are a few things I hate as a parent as much as that. So what does that look like? It means if you have a lust problem, a pornography problem, believe the grace of God. Step into the light and get some help. Do you have an anger problem, a cynicism issue, always ready to explode? The grace of God is here for you. Step into the light, let it get covered, and get help. What is the church for except a safe place, to, safe place to go. We're all broken fools. We're all traveling down this road together, and we desperately need one another following after our shepherd, King Jesus. This is a long journey, but if we're going to step into this moment in history to raise passionate Jesus followers, it will take you being violent against the things that have haunted you. 
Some of us, that, that hurt or that sin issue has been festering for decades. And we would be foolish to think that that's not affecting our kids. So please, please, for the sake of your children, deal with your stuff. Don't let that thing fester any longer. Come into the light. Invite Jesus into the mess. Invite trusted friends into the mess. Meet with a counselor. Just whatever you do, please don't let it fester and rot you from the inside out for another decade. Our kids are being formed by who we are in good and negative ways. And you dealing with your stuff doesn't mean that they aren't going to have struggles of their own. But it does mean that their stuff won't be the stuff that has haunted you and maybe your family for generations. Living into unrelenting grace also means extending that unrelenting grace to the next generation. That means being a place that says, we know that these years are hard. We know that these years matter, and it's okay. It's okay to not be okay. We are a safe place to struggle, and we need to be a place that they don't feel like they have to hide and lie, but that we will give them grace and love as they step into the light. The last thing I want to share, and honestly what got me most excited to teach this message today, is the importance of meaningful relationships. Probably my biggest dream I have for Rock and for this next generation is that every single one of our kids and our teens would have a mentor or multiple mentors that journey life with them. Their primary mentor will always be their parents. But I've been a teenager. I've been in youth ministry long enough to know that there comes a time when kids no longer really have an ear for their parents. I've had the privilege of getting to be that mentor in a number of kids' lives, partnering with their parents, saying pretty much the same thing that their parents are saying, but from a voice that they're willing to hear in that moment. And I desperately want that for my kids, for someone or multiple people to come alongside and say, hey, I'm with you. I'm for you. I love you. And I want to walk alongside you through the ups and downs of life. I was reflecting on my life, and I'm unbelievably thankful for the many people that have poured into me, whether as official mentors or just someone who cares. I had guys like Mike Coles and Paul Jolliker and Matt Leto throughout high school who cared. They showed up. They were there for me when I needed. When I moved to Ottawa for school and knew literally almost nobody, this couple in their mid-20s just kind of adopted me in. We served in youth ministry together, and they would have me over multiple times a week, feed me a good home-cooked meal, just check in on my heart, encourage me, challenge me, love me. I've got a guy now who's about 20 years older than me. He just gets me, and he cares. He's one of the most real, authentic people I know. He's walked alongside me through some of the more challenging seasons of my life. He's kicked me in the butt a number of times, and yet he is gracious and compassionate. And I know that there is never going to be anything that I say or do that will push him away or make him think anything less of me. And then I got a guy like Jonathan, who's my boss, but he's so much more than a boss. He cares deeply about me. He supports me. He says the hard things in love at times. And he's one of the most authentic people I know. He's my boss, but even more so, he's a friend and he's a brother in Christ. So those who are, I would categorize as like, intentional mentors in my life. But then there's people that haven't been my mentors, but have poured into me, encouraged me, shown me the path to Jesus. People as far back as when I was in Kidsman. People like the Stoskies, the Knights, 
the Dews, the Simmons, the Yons, the Timgrins, the Duns, the Lidos, the Wallers, the Clouks, the Eglowates, the Wests, the Babers, the Garbies, the Rabinooks, even guys like Tim Gordon. Tim was one of the first people that saw something in me as a musician, as a worship leader. All the people who served in tiny treasures and prayed for me as a baby that I don't even know their names. I even think of a guy like Bob McHugh. Keith shared a few weeks back that he's gone to be with Jesus. From my memory, Bob wasn't one of my leaders in any kids' programs. He was a guy that just cared. Every week I saw him, he took the time to notice me. He took the time to talk to me, to care about what I was going through. Little eight, 10-year-old Glenn and 70-something-year-old Bob McHugh. What a duo. I'm sure I've missed dozens of people, and I'm sorry, but I hope you get the point. These people got it. These people saw that the next generation, they saw it, and they chose to pour into us and be part of our story towards Jesus. I am who I am today because I had a community of faith that wrapped their arms around me, that loved me, support me through every stage of my journey with Christ. And when I didn't have ears for my parents, I had a village that was willing to pick me up for them. It wasn't perfect. It'll never be perfect, but it was beautiful. So let me close with this. I have a dream for Knack that there would be a waiting list to serve in Tiny Treasures and King's Kids and Forge and Rock because we so believe that this is our moment in history to pour into that next generation. I want to thank every one of you that are currently serving in that area today. You're making a real kingdom impact, even if you never get to see the fruit. But imagine if you went up to Chris after the service and you were like, I really want to serve in Forge. And she was like, ah, that's great, but we're actually full. Two or three years, we'll probably have some people rotate out and, and then you can jump in. Or, or maybe a revival will break out and we'll have a few hundred kids and then we'll have space for you. But seriously, we ought to have a waiting list to serve in Kidsmen because that's where the action is. That's where the front lines of ministry is. If we want to be a safe place where our kids and teens can grow into the beauty of the gospel, be affirmed in their gifting, and called towards holiness, that is going to take all of us understanding the importance of this. These are the most formational, foundational years of our kids' lives. That's where laughter and play and confession and, and lack of pride and hubris is. So, if I haven't convinced you to go absolutely overwhelm Chris after the service, let me convince you of this. Every single one of our kids needs somebody to walk alongside life with them while they're trying to figure it out. The primary responsibility falls on their parents, but their parents need all the help they can get. So I have a challenge for you today. Bare minimum, I would love for you to pick three or more kids or teens and just commit to praying for them at least weekly. Maybe you want to jot their names down on a little card in front of you. Uh, if you don't know any kids or teens, well, go start introducing yourself. There's a lot of them in the last, last row there. My next level of challenge is to just engage with them. They're kind of like wild animals. They're a lot more scared of you than you are of them. <laughs> so take the first step. Introduce yourself. If you already know some of them, 
just intentionally be present in their lives. When you see them on Sundays, check in with them, talk with them, care about what they're going through, ask them how you could pray for them, and then actually pray for them. Be their Bob McHugh. And my last challenge is to prayerfully consider if there's one or two kids or teens that you might step into an intentional mentorship relationship with. Little ground rule, if they're not 18, you should probably talk with their parents first so that they know what's going on and they're comfortable with it. But if you need some help figuring out what this looks like, I would love to talk to you more about it. Don't overthink it. Every relationship's different. But your goal should just be to meet them where they're at, engage with them as far as they'll let you in. Do your best to point them to the only true story there is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and shower them with unrelenting grace. Amen?